everybody has good days and everybody's going to have bad days. But I think high performance is where that gap between your best day and your worst day is narrower than everybody else's. And I think what that then leads to is that you're able to understand what makes you good at what you do, Mm. but equally it internalizes it and gives you the locus of control that says you know how to fix it because you've got self-awareness remarkably quickly. So that answer of um, the gap between your best and worst day being narrower than everyone else's contains an awful lot of elements of high performance that, um, that I've identified uh, over the course of the interviews. Hello and welcome back. I am your host, Tracy Duke, and this is the brand new season of the Dare to Dream podcast. Designed with a new year, positive vibes, and goal setting in mind, we want this episode to inspire you and get you seriously thinking about what's possible for the year ahead. Now in season four of the podcast, we're continuing to explore the psychology behind overcoming extreme challenge and asking the question, are we all truly capable of achieving extraordinary success? And if so, how do we do it? Now my guest today is someone who definitely knows a thing or two about this. A professor of organizational psychology and change, he is the co-host of the High Performance Podcast, which is one I recommend to anyone looking to seriously up their game and learn from the best. Now diving into the mindset of high achieving world-class performers, Damien and his co-host Jake Humphreys have brought some truly phenomenal interviews to the table. So Clive Woodward, Johnny Wilkinson, Matthew McConaughey, Sir Ben Ainsley, Michelle Moan, and Sir Chris Hoy being just a few. Now before we jump into conversation, I just want to give a shout out to our partner course, Meditation the Game Changer. It's a powerful 10 module deep dive into the practice of meditation, the non-negotiable tool of high achievers across the world. Head on over to Dare to Dream online to check it out. Try a complimentary module a taster session and kickstart your new year with some real focus. And now it is my absolute pleasure to welcome you, Damien, to the podcast. Thank you so much for joining me. And it's such short notice as well. We've turned this around so quickly. Well, thank you for the invitation, Tracy. It's a real privilege to be uh, an honour to be asked. So thank you for having me on and thanks for giving such a kind introduction as well. Oh, you're welcome. Honestly, it, I, I've been listening to your podcast now for probably the best part of a year. Um, and I don't always catch them as soon as they come out, but I always make sure I go back and listen when I can. Oh, um, thank you. You know, without a doubt, what I mean, I said, <laughs> listed the some of the guests you're bringing to the table. And, you know, it's truly, truly inspirational. Thank you. Oh, well, thank you. That's really kind. And that's a real affirmation of what we're trying to do, similar to this podcast, the Dare to Dream one, where we're trying to sort of um, expose as many people as we can to some of these high performers and demystify the process that there's no secret to it. There are some techniques that we can all take away and apply to our own lives, so, you know, with our own resources and the level we're at. So thank you for making the time to listen. Oh, you're very welcome. Well, you know what, Damien, I'm going to open this interview up with um, the way in which you open yours and I'm you that question which you pose to um, many of your guests and that is in your mind what is high performance well it, 
I was going to say it's a billion question, but then I'm also aware that sounds like I'm giving myself a pat on the back with it because we do ask it. But it is a billion question because I think what it allows us to explore is that, that, that in the whole series that we've done, we've done over 50 interviews now and we've had 50 different answers to this. And I think that's an important point to recognise the only consistency is the inconsistency of responses because high performance is different to all of us. I think my definition, though, is that uh, there's, a, there's a phrase here around consistency. So everybody has good days and everybody's going to have bad days. But I think high performance is where that gap between your best day and your worst day is narrower than everybody else's. Nice. And I think what that then leads to is that you're able to understand what makes you good at what you do, mm. but equally it internalizes it and gives you the locus of control that says you know how to fix it because yeah. you've got self-awareness remarkably quickly. So that answer of um, the gap between your best and worst day being narrower than everyone else's contains an awful lot of elements of high performance that, um, that I've identified uh, over the course of the interviews. Okay, for sure. So is there, with that in mind, is there... Is there a common thread that you found that does tend to emerge more often? Yeah, definitely. I think um, there's a number of common threads that we found. So as I say, to go back to the idea that I think everybody has got a different definition and everybody's on a different journey. So um, when we talk about high performance, this is a concern that we've had that we don't want people to think that this is about having to make millions, win gold medals, be the number one on the rostrum. That's really not what we're trying to do because everybody starts from their own place with their own level of ability, their own resources, and their own knowledge that we have. So high performance is, can you improve your own level of performance? So it's not about the competition of, of uh, measuring yourself against anybody else's. So to answer that, I think we found a number of different factors. I think one of the first things that we found, Tracy, is the importance of humility. Yeah. Now, I'm conscious that humility is a phrase that uh, often gets banded around when people are actually like bragging. So there's that phrase, that humble brag, or people talk about it almost as a bit of a meme or a cliche. But what I found is that humility is a mindset, and it's a very clear mindset that all of our uh, interviewees have possessed. And the easiest way to explain it is, I think there's three stages to that mindset of, of getting to a place of humility. The first stage is what I, I describe it um, colloquially as peak idiot stage. And this is where your level of confidence is based on a relatively narrow amount of information. So we assume that we're better than we are because we don't understand the full picture. So if you think of say, the early stages of programs like X Factor or Britain's Got Talent, Peak idiot stage is the part that attracts most viewers because it's funny to see somebody that can't sing making a statement like they're going to sing like Mariah Carey and then they sound like a cat being strangled. Now, what we, we all hit peak idiot stage, but high performers get beyond that stage remarkably quickly. Okay. And the second stage is they enter what I call the valley of humility, where you know that you don't know an awful lot. So this is where you have a curiosity you start to explore, you, you become open to new ideas. And the longer you stay in that valley of humility, the more knowledge you start to acquire. 
And then you get to the third stage, which is where you get to the hill of knowledge, where you've got a level of expertise that, you're, that you know what you know, but you're comfortable with going back down into the valley of humility at any stage to go and explore and find out more information. So I think that's a really powerful trait that we've had with so many of our interviewees that they get beyond peak idiot stage quite quickly and get into that valley of humility where they're curious and, um, and, and have that real innate um, interest in the subject that they want to get into the nuts and bolts of it. So, for example, one of the questions that we often ask them, our interviewees, is how do you apply this to children? So you might be talking to, say, Dylan Hartley, who was the England Rugby Union captain, and he, he was a father of two young children, and we were talking to him about his rugby career and some of the lessons, and the question we asked was, how are you going to take those lessons and apply them to your children? And what was really interesting was, his answer was, I don't know. I've never been a parent before, and I'm learning the process of being a father, and I'm trying to take some of what I've learned and work out how do I apply it. So he wasn't making bold statements that he was going to do this or that. He understood why he was a successful rugby player, but he then went into that valley of humility to say, but I'm learning to be a father. And that's just a, a very quick anecdote that illustrates how all of our elite performers get into this place of humility because they're constantly prepared to open and learn and ask questions. So there's a vulnerability there as well. Well, absolutely. I mean, humility, it, the flip, um, it, it, I was going to say the flip side, but I don't think it's a flip side to it. I think it, it, it's an addition to it of vulnerability is required to be curious, to admit to somebody, I don't know. I don't have the answers here. I'm not sure. Could you help me with this? I think to enter that place requires two things. One, you need to feel psychologically safe that you're not going to be made to feel a fool or to be set up to be ridiculous. But secondly, you put your trust in the hands of somebody else. And when you give trust to somebody, that by definition makes you vulnerable. Mm -hmm. And I think being comfortable with those elements are really key attributes of high performers. And leaders as well. Absolutely, yeah. I think that's a really powerful point. That I think that if you think about some of our leaders, say if you look in the corporate world, before rather than touch on, say, the political climate at the moment, but I think when a company makes a mistake and they come out and just hold their hand up and say, we've made a mistake and we're really sorry about this, yeah. where do you go from that? If you're a consumer, immediately somebody's taken accountability, they've accepted it, and they're prepared to fix it. I think that then leads to a deeper level of engagement. I mean, it, it was Daniel Kahneman, the, uh, the Nobel Prize winning psychologist that talks about the peak end law. So if we relate this to say the, the pandemic that's going on at the moment, when all this is over, what will people remember? Well, according to Kahneman's law, they'll remember three things. They'll remember how you felt when we first went into lockdown. You'll remember how we feel when we eventually come out of lockdown. But the most powerful thing that will decide your, your memory will be how leaders behave at their very worst moments. And I think if you've got leaders that say, you know what, we've made a mistake here, that, that, that we got this wrong, but we did it with the right intention, but we apologize for it. I think that's what people will remember long after those leaders that try and fudge their way out of it or, or try and point the finger or prevaricate or, 
uh, or make things ambiguous with their language. I, God, absolutely, hundred percent agree. And again, it's you know, I, I don't. The thing is, there, there is nowhere. They're so exposed. There's nowhere to hide. And so we can't pretend we know it all. We can't pretend that we've got it right. And we'll see through you. We'll see through you if you're not. Absolutely. So I work an awful lot within sort of elite sport, Tracy. And this is one of the things that um, I've learned through lots of mistakes that I've made through my career. The occasions when I can be most effective are when I work with the coaches rather than necessarily with the playing group because the coaches are the ones that wield the real authority there. So I now work where I, I do a lot of work as a, almost like an advisor to a lot of elite coaches. And there's two things that I often remind them of that what their people want. And I think this applies to the political sphere as well as the sporting domain is. I say they want two things off you, transparency and consistency. So they want you to say, this is what I stand for and tell them at the front and then just be consistent in the way that you apply those, those behaviours. So, because those two things, what they, being transparent and consistent, first of all, you're, you're being very open with people. You're nailing your colours to the mast. And then you provide that level of safety, psychological safety and security to people that they see that you operate in that consistent manner, regardless of the context. And I think if you were advising our political leaders at the moment, that's one of the things that you would say to them. Listen, we accept that this virus is is ambiguous and the situation is changing and it's very difficult to predict what's going to come next. But this is where it becomes critical for a leader to say, but this is the person I am. This is my values and by definition, my behaviors. So when I make a decision, this is the, 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 the almost decision gatekeepers that I will be making a decision based upon. Yes. And then when you understand that, well, then you decide whether you choose to elect a leader or otherwise for that. But if you knew where they stood and you understood that, that their decisions were going to be consistent with what they told you they were going to do, well, that gives people that sense of reassurance. And that's very much what I often say to the sort of, say, for example, when I work with sports coaches, I'll often say to them, prepare for your press conference your post-game press conference before the match has even been played. And they'll say, what do you mean by that? I'll say, well, we know that there's only one or three outcomes to the game that you're about to experience. You're going to win, you're going to lose, you're going to draw. But you shouldn't be responding in the emotion to whatever the result says. You should be consistent and you should be thinking to next week's training session or over the next month. So if you walk into that press conference and blame the referee you then create a culture where as a leader, you make excuses or you externalize it and point the finger. So when you get your players into that room on Monday morning and ask them to review their performance, you've already created an excuse for them that it wasn't their fault they got beat, it was the referees. So you need to almost be consistent with your behaviors, but, but making the time to be transparent up front is really critical to that. What you're saying is, is also reminding me of the way in which we, as we, we parent. So almost the way in which we, we uh, kind of guide and, and nurture and look after young children who need- Absolutely. Children. Is that where it comes from? This need as an adult comes from that 
Very much. I mean, I'm I'm a parent myself. Uh, so my children, are, my son's eleven, and I've got an eight-year-old daughter. And this is something that um, we we're similar to that example that I gave about Dylan Hartley. We didn't know how to be parents, and my wife and I went to um, when we found out we were expecting uh, my son. We went. We actually don't know what we're doing here, do we? <laughs> so we went to a parenting class. And it was like, well, why wouldn't you go to it? And there were so many really valuable insights that at the time, I'm not sure you can appreciate them as much as when you're in the moment of being a parent or you're reflecting on it. And this was one of the things that they said there, be really clear about what are your, what are your family behaviors that are non-negotiable? So again, if you go back to the High Performance Podcast, one of the questions we ask is, what are your three non-negotiable behaviors that you and everyone around you has to buy into? And that's where the idea would come from that we present it to our children. So the three that we use with our children is we talk about be kind, caring and sharing. So at any stage when they come back and they're trying to make sense of the world around them, we ask them, did you behave in a manner that was kind? Were you caring and were you sharing in the way that you operated? And if you were, if you made a mistake, that's fine. As long as your, your behaviors were consistent, but if you've made a mistake and you haven't operated like that, let's go back to the blueprint of this is what we expect from you. Which I think I'm right in saying was um, an idea or a thought process that came up in the interview with Sir Clive Woodward when he was talking about how you build a culture and culture yeah. values. Yeah, so when we interviewed Sir Clive, uh, this was one of the things that we'd spoke to him about um, his, his seven year journey to win the World Cup with England. And I think that's an important point to mention that that we often think it's the peak end law. We think about that 2003 final, but the reality was there was a long journey that preceded that. And it's easy to forget that. But during that, it was when the building blocks of creating a culture were being laid down. And Sir Clive spoke about the famous example that he offered us when we chatted with him was around timekeeping. And timekeeping was almost the uh, the consequence of a whole series of behaviours that preceded it. Because the point was that if, he, if, if you show up late for a meeting, that indicates that somewhere you think that, that your time is more important than anybody else's. And by definition, you think that you are more important than others. Mm-hmm. Now, in a team environment, that kind of belief or behaviour is toxic. It leads to a toxic culture. So they took that behavior of respect for others and said, how does that manifest itself in terms of turning up for meetings and timekeeping? And the players identified what they called Lombardi time after the American football coach Vince Lombardi that said, whatever time a meeting is scheduled for, you turn up 10 minutes early. And that's the, that's the acceptable standard. Yes. Now, what's been interesting is that I would say that... A re- a remarkable amount of our interviewees, when we've asked them for a non-negotiable behaviour, cite timekeeping as as uh, as a non-negotiable. That if you show up late for meetings with them, it's just completely unacceptable. And what illustrated it probably best of all, Tracy, was that when um, when we interviewed Chris Hoy, uh, we we were meeting him in Manchester, which is near where he lives, and it was a really cold, bleak day. And the studios we were in weren't the easiest to find. 
And uh, we'd arranged to meet at 10 o'clock, and at 10 to 10, there was a knock on the door. So when I went to open it, so Chris Hoy, Britain's greatest Olympian, is stood there waiting. Now, I'd never met him before, so I sort of introduced myself and welcomed him in. And when I was sort of making small talk with him, I said, oh, thanks for getting here early, Chris. It just makes the day go a lot more smoothly. And he was affronted that I thanked him for turning up early. And I said, what do you mean? And he went, we've arranged to be at 10 o'clock. 10 to 10 is, is what time I would always turn up. Now, it was an intriguing response. So I said to him, um, would you explain more about it? And we sort of pulled the thread. And when we spoke about non-negotiable behaviours, his answer was, I've got three. He said, first of all, there's respect for others. The second behaviour is humility. And the third one is commitment. Now, in that one anecdote of him turning up 10 minutes early for a meeting, he's demonstrated the respect for other people's time the humility of not thinking that because he's Britain's greatest Olympian, he can do what he wants. Yeah. And the commitment that he's just delivered on the time that he said he would be there. So you can, now, do we believe that, like a lot of military environments teach you, that when you come under pressure, you don't rise to the performance, you descend to your level of training? So if we take that principle and apply it to Chris Hoy, do we believe that when he's on the track waiting to race in the men's uh, gold medal? Uh, final in the velodrome do we believe that those behaviors of humility respect and commitment are going to help him well i'd argue they're fundamental to what he's going to do but that's not he's not practicing it when he's on the track he's practicing it in pretty much every aspect of his life to reinforce it so i think when you're really clear about these behaviors and you communicate them with real transparency what it allows people to do is they can either go, I don't agree with that, but it's better that we, that we have that conversation up front where we say, maybe this isn't the right environment for you to come into it from a cultural point of view, or if we're going to work together, maybe it's best that we don't work together. And it's far better to do that up front by being really clear and nailing your behaviors to the mast than it is to start working together and then find ourselves in conflict because of we have different, uh, subjective views on what's acceptable or not. Oh, absolutely. And, and I guess, you know, that that applies to whatever relationship you have, whether it's kind of, a, you know, kind of in, in a work environment, whether it's in a home environment, it's those values that set the foundation for everything else. Well, I agree there, Tracy. I think, I, but I take it a step further that I think we start with our values we have to remember that values are deep and they're personal and they're intrinsic. They're, they're unique to us. I think what's important that you then do is you then translate them and you carry the conversation on that says, and this is how I behave. So your behaviors should be a reflection of your values in action. So for example, I might say, I believe in uh, respect and you might go, okay, right. But your, your view on what respect means might be different than mine. So we need to explain about how am I now going to behave? So when we meet with each other, I will always greet you by first name. And so you almost manifest it in behavioral terms. So you understand what we mean by that. And I think when I work with teams, where I think this becomes really effective is when you've communicated our values in action and talk about trademark behaviors, What that allows you to do is you can then start to feed back on each other because you're feeding back on behaviors, not the person. Okay. So, so I'm not attacking your values. 
but I might attack your behaviors. And I might say, I don't appreciate you behaving like that. And because when I work with teams and we talk about feedback, I say, you can always change your behaviors. You can't change the person you are. So don't attack the person, attack the behavior, feedback on behaviors at all time. And that's why I think that extending the conversation from values into behaviors allows people to, to, to feel safe enough to, to, to compliment or criticize those behaviors without the person themselves feeling attacked. Okay, that makes absolute sense. I want to ask, um, I, I have a question going, I'm trying to process sure. talking, and it's what happens when values and behavior are out of alignment. How do you bring that back together? How do you realign? Well, I think, so again, this is a powerful role that you can have somebody play for you that, that almost, first of all, you have to be able to articulate what your values and therefore your behaviors are. But then get some, we all develop what's known as a scotoma. And a scotoma means we often become blind to what we do every day. So we get into patterns and habits where we become blind. So sometimes opening yourself up to feedback from somebody that, that isn't within your world can be really valuable than telling us when what we do is yeah. misaligned with how we behave. So I'll give you a really simple example that many years ago I was doing some work with an organization where they, they spoke about being a meritocracy. They spoke about everybody was equal and everyone was treated equal regardless of rank or status or experience. And one of the chief exec was expounding that this was one of his values of his organization. My question was, well, why do you have reserved car parking spaces for the senior leadership then? Because you've contradicted what you're telling me before I need to walk past the reception desk. Because not everybody is equal when it comes to car parking policy. Now, his argument to me was, do you think that's a really significant point? I said, I'd estimate 80% of the time, nobody will care. But I guarantee there will be about 20% of your leadership where you, where you require people just to act on blind faith and trust. And they're the occasions where that car parking policy will become an albatross around your neck because nobody follows hypocrites. We don't follow people that say one thing and behave in a different way. So I think we need to have somebody there that plays the role of, I'll give you a bit of an obscure reference here, but in Roman times, um, more far-sighted Roman generals used to have a role called a memento mori that would sit on their shoulder and it translates as a reminder of your mortality. And it was a guy that would sit on your shoulder and say, you're not all that, you know. Don't get carried away with your own importance. Yeah. And I think that leaders should regularly open themselves up to the role of a memento mori that can come in and just challenge things that they take for granted, that, that, that challenges the inconsistency of their behaviours. I think success can often be really seductive but equally dangerous because I think that we interviewed uh, Kelly Jones, who's the lead singer uh, of the Stereophonics, and one of the uh, questions I asked him was, I spoke about um, advice and wisdom that he'd been given by his elders within the sort of rock industry. And he said that Bono from U2 had given him advice once where he said to him, have a look around any table that you sat at he said, and if 70% of the people sat around that table are on your payroll, you're in serious trouble. Because they're people that are paid to laugh. They're people paid just to tell you you're great. 
And he said, and that's a dangerous place for you to be. And that's why I think that success can be seductive, that we can start kidding ourselves that we're better than we are or we're more important than it. Be humble. Be kind, be decent, don't get carried away. And again, that's going back to what we were talking about earlier with regard to humility and, you know, in particular, you know, teams like England, like the All Blacks. I would say that in my experience, um, the best teams do. I agree with that. But I think that um, often, I think I've been into some cultures where they almost know they need to say humility is important, but it isn't always so evident. Like, I remember a few years ago, I got into a bit of a, um, a disagreement with a friend of mine that was working with uh, England Rugby at the time. And uh, they put a picture on social media of uh, the dressing rooms in Cardiff, at the Millennium Stadium, and made the boast that they tidied the dressing rooms after, after being there. And my point was, why do you need to tell people? Yeah. If, if you, if you, so in the All Blacks talk about sweeping the sheds and, and leaving a place better than you found it when you inherited it. And go, that's great, I understand that. But surely it defeats the object if you then need to tell everybody that you've done it. Okay, so where... It should be enough internally that as long as everybody understands internally, everyone that's part of that culture, that's why we did it. Okay. I'm not sure what it gains to then tell everybody that, oh, look how humble we are, because I think that contradicts it. Now, I don't claim that I've got the right answer to it, but it's a question that's worth pondering. So let's let's move on to um, to some of your interviews. Then I'm going to pick up on two of them. <laughs> Go on. Of two of my favourites. One was with Matthew McConaughey, and the other was with Johnny Wilkinson, which we'll jump into. Um, something that that sort of stuck with me and, and really got me thinking. And all of your interviews get me thinking afterwards. I quite often have to press pause and process what I'm hearing. Um, is it actually, let, let's, let's start there. Is that something that you find yourself wanting to do? Because a lot of the um, kind of level of conversation is very intellectual and we're going to a, to a much deeper level than uh, a kind of a regular conversation. Do you ever find yourself wanting to just press pause and process? <laughs> yeah, often, yeah. I think, um, I think, I mean, that's been the privilege of working with Jake because um, Jake's an experienced broadcaster um, and he's, he's phenomenal at his job. And I think what's an interesting anecdote about it is that I think the skill that Jake really possesses is invisible until you, until you're, you experience it. So I think that it's easy, again, peak idiot stages, we can watch the television and you can see somebody hosting it and you think, I could do a job like that. And then when you actually see up close how difficult and the detail it is and you've got somebody in your ear and you're having to keep the pace of it going and think of the next question, it gives you an appreciation of actually there's a real art to it that, that, uh, that only the very best can do. Yeah. And, and, and yeah, and the analogy I use is the first time that uh, Jake and I, the first interview that we did uh, was with Sir Ben Ainsley. So we went down to uh, the Solent to interview him. And uh, have you ever had the experience, Tracy, of standing on a train platform when a train isn't stopping at the station and it comes whizzing through at full speed? Yeah. And it sort of sucks the air out, doesn't it? And you can feel the, like the ground shake beneath you. Yeah. 
And that's the analogy I would use for the moment when I was sat next to Jacob, Ben Ainsley was sat on my right hand side and we began the interview and I, Jake kicked it off and it was like a train going through the station just really fast and, and it was the first time I'd really appreciated just how brilliant he was at his job. And I remember sort of feeling the ground shape beneath me and thinking, wow, he's really good. And then having to remind myself, I've got to say something in a minute. I almost like have to try and jump on that train. Yeah, so I, I feel incredibly privileged that I've been lucky enough to do it with Jake because I think he he's really skilled at picking up the the pace and, and the nuance and, and, and the energy of the interview. So that is my equivalent of a pause button at times that I know Jake will pick something up so I get a chance to, to think and reflect a little bit on yeah. where we're going with it. Um, but yeah, frequently, I think um, one of the things that I keep at the forefront of my mind is that when we when it's getting quite intellectual or when I feel that we're getting quite deep, asking the question of how can our l- listeners do something with that? So, for What's example... plan coming from it? Yeah, so I'll give you an example about the Matthew McConaughey one. That there was a number of questions that really intrigued me. For example, he tells a great anecdote about... Um, when fame descended on him. So he talks about his first film, first box office film was Time to Kill. And he says, uh, the day that the film was released, he walked to a deli and he walked past 400 people and he said, 396 people ignored me. He said, the night, the, uh, the day after the film had come out, he said, I walked to the same deli, walked past the same 400 people and 396 people stopped and looked at me. Now, I was intrigued to know, how do you cope with, with that? level of fame but when Jacob himself spoke about it he said how is that relevant to a listener because most of us listening to that are never going to have fame land on our heads in that same way so whilst it might be an intriguing question to ask him yeah. where does that leave a listener so a listener would go right that's interesting but it doesn't mean anything to me so I think that's the question that we keep at the forefront of our mind uh, during the interviews of how how could you apply this as a parent or as a partner or as a professional? Yes. And, and 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 I think that sort of stops us getting too bogged down in areas that might be interesting to listen to, but don't leave you with anything you can take away. Okay, then you can bring it back on track. There's a, a poem, and I'm, I'm going to find it, and I'm going to put the link um, in the notes afterwards. But the poem's called Ask the Question Close In. So when you're in that... Um, you know, when you're, when you're in a conversation where you may be feeling a little overwhelmed, you know, whether that is, you know, whether you're facing a, you know, a, a boss or a, a partner or whatever, if you're curious, ask, ask the question closest to you. Yeah, the one... Brilliant, I love that. The one that means something, because if it means something to you, then it's going to mean something to someone else, right? Yeah, yeah I mean, you'd hope so, yeah. I mean, I think that... The, this has been a really interesting journey for me to go on because I, and, and I think it, it's led me to make a number of decisions that I've been learning as I go along with it. So when we first did it, um, I, so we put a picture up on social media of myself and Jake and Rio Ferdinand, who was our first interviewee. And on social media, the first comment, I won't tell you the exact words was said, but it wasn't complimentary. It was basically abuse to the three of us and 
I was a little bit thrown by it because I thought, why would somebody write that? And then as we went through it, like I, I saw occasionally comments that I didn't feel were particularly kind or helpful about either myself or Jake or, or the person that we were interviewing. And eventually I made the decision just to remove myself from the conversation. And the reason for that is not arrogance because I'm open to feedback from people that want to give it constructively. So if somebody wanted to send me an email and give me an opinion, I would listen to it because they've gone to the trouble of finding my email address and they've wrote a, a response. And so I would listen to it, I'd take it on board and I'd give them a reply. But I made the decision to remove myself from social media because I didn't want to be second guessing myself during it that if somebody was going to say, what a stupid question that is. Well, but it might have been a question close in for me. It might have been a question that I was really intrigued by. So if you're thinking, should I ask this question because somebody's going to call me an idiot on social media? I felt that that would dilute my own authenticity. Yeah. So I decided that, that, that you have to ask questions that are important to you. And I think that I'd, I'd love to see that poem because I think that really articulates a, a, a powerful truth yes. for me, certainly. It's a beautiful one. I, um, uh, I was shown it, oh gosh, at the start of lockdown, actually, and it, it really moved me. Um, so I will send it to you. And, and again, for the listeners, it's a, it's a beautiful piece to, to listen to. I'm, I'm racking my brains now trying to think who wrote it, but it will come back to me. Yeah, of course. Thank you. <laughs> um, so... So just um, picking up on the interview with Matthew, so one of yeah. the questions, or one of the points of discussion that he made was where he talks about his decision-making process and how he makes a life-changing, when he's making a life-changing decision, he sits on it for a total of 20 days. So 10 days where he's absolutely 100% committed to it and 10 days where he's, not going to do it and then during that period he watches to see what bubbles up what emotions it brings up um I've never heard of that process I mean for me I'm very much someone who's very intuitive I, I go on my gut feeling I'm quite reactive if it feels right I will, I will do it without thinking too much more so I'm fascinated by that process and what yeah. your thoughts were on that yeah I think um I think it's a really powerful concept. I think the idea of 20 days is, is, is often far longer than most of us have the luxury of time to be able to do it. So Matthew spoke about if he was deciding to take a particular film next year, for example, and how he would sit on it for 20 days. So he's got that, that, that sort of time scale. But I, I don't think that should frighten anyone listening to this, that we can still apply the same methodology, but maybe in a more condensed time scale. So, but the point that he was making was that it's almost like go with everything with complete commitment and then, and then stand down. So it's almost that idea of say that you're taking this particular role or you're going to accept this challenge and that do it without any doubts, I'm going to accept it. And then, like he said, sit back and just allow those emotions to start to, unsurf uh, to rise to the surface of, you know, is it exciting you or... Is it keeping you awake at night or is there something that concerns you or is there a lack of enthusiasm from your partner to it? And he said, and all those, all those emotions and those questions will start to bubble to the surface once you've made that commitment. 
And then you should, if, if, if you've got any doubts, make the commitment that you're not going to do it. And again, let it see, just let that settle and see what emotions bubble up uh, on the back of it. And I think that's a really powerful way to do it. Of almost, I've heard of organizations like um, Pretamonje did this where they would, act, they would give somebody a job and they had to come and they'd pay them to come and work in their store for a week. And it was almost like the opportunity for both the employee and the rest of the team to almost experience what it would be like if you were a permanent member of staff. And then at the end of that week, you have an honest conversation that says, does this feel right for both parties? It can be a really powerful way of, rather than acting in haste and repenting at leisure, it just gives us the opportunity to almost uh, have a little taster of it, almost have a sample of what our world would be like, and then to be able to make objective, clear-headed decisions on it. So, and, 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 and again, you know, I've heard of people doing this almost on the flip of a coin, that you flip a coin and whatever uh, what it comes down on, that's the decision that you're going to go with. And then just existing on that way, they can just be really simple ways of both trusting your intuition, but without making commitments over a long term that you might end up regretting. How do you make decisions? Do you have a process? Yeah, I do. Um, I think the way that I've tended to do it is I have three internal gatekeepers. So decision makers that go back to our, our conversation earlier, Tracy, around values uh, and by definition behaviours. So I've spent a long time sort of reflecting on who am I when I'm at my best? When I'm doing something, what is it that, like, how do I show up? So if I'm going to commit to do something, uh, I, um, I want to make that commitment and turn up and give my absolute best to it. So when I've reflected on that, I've looked at my own behaviours that, um, that are in evidence when that's the case, and I've, and I've identified my three non-negotiables. So the first non-negotiable has to be uh, kindness. And when I talk about kindness, I talk about kindness to myself, first of all. And then by definition, if you treat yourself with kindness, that gives you the capacity to be able to treat others with kindness. Now, the reason I came to that conclusion is I don't always feel I've honoured that behaviour particularly well. I feel that sometimes I've done, I've flogged, but my internal voice can sometimes be quite cruel. So even when I'm exhausted, I'll, it'll be the idea of just get on with it, stop moaning, stop whinging. And, I, and I've had occasions where I've pushed myself to the point of physical exhaustion. So uh, I've been unfortunate to uh, have meningitis twice in my life. And on each occasion, it was because when I look back in hindsight, uh, alarm bells had been ringing and I was continuing to push myself uh, relentlessly. Yeah. So I think occasions where I've been, and then by definition, when I've done that, I haven't always then had the capacity to be kind to my family or people around me. So I think kindness, first of all, has to be, I have to know that I've got the time and the space and the, and, and the resources to be able to do the job or to feel like I can learn on it. So kindness is my first gatekeeper. My second one has got to be, uh, it's got to be fun there's got to be an element that gives me some pleasure or enjoyment. And again, where that reflection came from was that when you go back to like your school days, 
um, when you think about the subjects where you really enjoyed them, where you think back on them fondly, they were subjects that really intrigued you. And by definition, you loved exploring and you loved uh, delving deeper into the topic. And I think that, uh, again, times where I've let myself down have been where I've done it. And I have... I've almost been blinded by other reasons, not particularly the enjoyment or the love of what I was doing. So uh, doing things that are going to be fun, that get me excited, is my second gatekeeper. And then the third one is, uh, is that I have to feel I can make a positive difference or a contribution to whatever I'm working in. Um, my dad used to say to me that he said, if, if people don't notice your absence, well, nobody will care about your presence. And it's almost that idea of you have to, if you're going to be there, you've got to be able to offer something. You've got to be able to, uh, to make a positive difference. So if, if I'm fortunate enough to be presented with an opportunity, I've learned enough now that my gatekeeper is, am I being kind to myself? Do I feel that I can do this without flogging myself or without having to expect my family or other people to make compromises? Uh, is it fun? Does it really excite me and engage me? And then finally, can I make a positive difference? Do I feel I can bring something uh, useful to this? And if the answer to those three is yes, well, that takes me a step closer to deciding whether I'll take on a project or or I'll work on it. Yeah. If it if it's not, I've learned enough now. Like I say, mostly by my own mistakes, that there are alarm signals that say just take pause for a moment or or go back and have a have a conversation with the people that I'm going to engage with to either fix it or just clarify why why I can't work on it. Beautiful. For the record, those are my three gatekeepers. Oh wow, really? Exactly that. Well what I'm thinking now is that if those gatekeepers are so deeply embedded in me as they obviously are in you, is that how and why you are then able to make a gut reaction decision is that when the gut feeling the instinct kicks in because it's so finely tuned to your gatekeepers that you can make that decision a little quicker than the 20 days <laughs> i think so I, I i think some of it is that um like experience is a great teacher as long as you're prepared to 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 then go to to do the homework on that experience so when people say to me oh you know uh as you get older, you become wiser. And I go, not necessarily. I think I know lots of stupid old people and I know lots of really smart, wise young people. So the question is, well, what's the difference? And the, and the key difference is that both are the ones that where wisdom is almost conferred on them is where they've gone and explored honestly and forensically what, what that experience taught them, what they learned and what they're going to take from it. So I think an awful lot of, um, of my experiences have been where things have gone wrong or cock-ups have happened or I've made a mistake or I've been put on my backside. And I think whilst they're painful in the moment and maybe when you reflect on it, I think then you start to go, well, what was missing there? Why did that happen? And it might have been, well, you weren't kind, so you were flogging yourself to death. So when you did it, you, your energy levels were depleted and that's why you didn't give your best in that moment. Or, you know, like I remember working with um, a team uh, many years ago where on the, on the paper, it was just a really attractive proposition to work with the team. And I went and worked there for 
in my meetings, the alarm bells were ringing for me that I didn't feel that it was a particularly kind environment. Uh, it, it was like a bit of a bullying environment going into it. When I challenged it, my concerns were just delayed or dismissed. So I didn't feel I could make a positive difference to it. And that gave me the confidence eventually to go and say, you know what, this isn't a judgment. It doesn't mean that I'm right and you're wrong. It just means that this isn't the right environment for us to work together in. So rather than me come in and you be disappointed with me and me feel disenfranchised with coming here, can we just agree at this moment that we part as friends and maybe you need to look for somebody different than, with a different skill set than what I can offer you? And I think that, uh, that comes through mistakes and getting burned and making cock-ups um, before you can reach that conclusion. That takes real, I, I want to say wisdom, strength to, to do that um, and to be able to recognize that. And then I guess it is just the experience. I had something similar um, just very recently where I had to make a tough decision like that. And it felt so, I, f I felt so guilty, so bad for doing it, but I knew that there was a, a big misalignment between what the two of us wanted. Sorry to interrupt you there, Tracy, but just as you say, Nate, that one of the interviewees uh, from the podcast that we talked about was a guy called Mauricio Pochettino, who's just taken over as Paris Saint-Germain's head coach, but he's an Argentine that was very successful at Tottenham. And he had a really beautiful way of articulating what, what we're talking about here, that I'm conscious that sometimes when, like when you explain this, that you have your non-negotiable behaviours and you go into an environment and it might not be right for you. People listening to this might think that that can be abrasive or confrontational. And Pochettino that we interviewed took out any aggression in the way that he explained it. And he said that he's got three non-negotiable behaviours of the culture that he sets out. So the first one is you have to bring po positive energy. So when you walk into his world, you have to come in there and bring positive energy. The second one is you have to uh, have a can-do attitude. So whatever gets thrown at you, you've got to be almost like optimistic of, right, let's make the best of this. Yeah. And then the third one was you have to be a team player above your own self-interest. And the way he then articulated it, so he was really clear about this, but then he said, you know what, that might not be right for you. And he said, and that's absolutely fine. And he said, but... I have a conversation with people where I say, this is what I'm not prepared to compromise on. And you don't have to agree, but let's try and find you an environment you can go to where you can thrive. Mm -hmm. Rather than you come into my world and we then end up in conflict with each other, let's avoid that conflict by let's find in you a different place where you can go and feel that, yeah. it, that there's a respect for your behaviours without you having to come in here. And we end up engaging each other in uh, uh, in disputes and disagreements. And when he articulated it to me, I remember thinking, I wish I'd had learned that. <laughs> I wish I'd had learned to uh, explain it in that in that gentler, more more constructive manner than what sometimes it's felt like where it feels like you're you're having to have difficult conversations and it needn't be difficult. It just needs to be honest and open. Yeah, and I'm guessing again that that goes back to the experience and that he's probably found himself in that position and made the mistakes like we all do and learn how to make sure that it goes a little bit better next time. <laughs> sure, exactly. 
Okay, I'm I'm desperately I want to jump into this Johnny Wilkinson interview. Oh God! Because yeah. I mean, I seriously had to listen to it four five times. <laughs> you know, you can go to any source and you can see a brilliant piece of writing about Johnny's experience in his career and everything else. But that interview with him absolutely blew my mind. It was unexpected. It was at a depth that I I really really had to work hard to get sure. around um well we'll put it into some context well actually i'm going to ask you to put that interview into context because i i'm pretty sure that it must have been one of your uh, or was it one of your most more challenging interviews to understand the process it's, it's a really good question I, um i haven't applied the term challenge to it because I felt when we were doing it that there was, I felt incredibly privileged that Johnny trusted us enough to come along and make himself so vulnerable yes. with the way he was prepared to talk. And so I didn't feel it was a challenge. I felt really humbled and privileged that he trusted us to do that. So. And likewise, I have to say, I felt that way as a listener, listening to it, I felt. Right. Yeah, exactly. So he came along, and for anyone that, ha that hasn't heard it, um, that he very rarely spoke about rugby, that, that he's moved on from rugby um, and quite a long way away from it in terms of where his mentality is. And, and his rationale behind it is that he said, if he allowed himself to be defined simply as uh, a rugby player or even as a World Cup winner, he said that would, that would mean that the rest of his life was spent looking back on the person he'd been. And he said, and yeah. that doesn't, uh, so he said, if I allow myself to think of myself as a World Cup winner, he said, 10 minutes after I've won the World Cup, I'm a lesser person than I was 10 minutes ago. So 10 years later, I'm even lesser still than that person 10 years ago. And the point was, he said that that's not how I define myself. And one of the comments he made was that he said, doing the washing up and with his hands in the bubbles and washing the pots is just as significant to him as kicking that last minute goal in the World Cup that I'm using my body to fulfill a particular task. But at that moment where my hands are in the washing up bowl, that is the most important task. And I allow myself to be fully present in that moment. So he talks about his definition of high performance is all of me, all of the time. So whatever he does, he allows himself to be immersed in that particular task. And Johnny was really prepared to talk in quite a lot of depth about how uh, rugby almost, he, he, so he used a phrase that he survived his career, he endured it as opposed to enjoyed it. And he spoke about how the pressure that he put himself under led to a number of mental health challenges that he's had to almost go and explore this topic to avoid um, falling into some of those black holes that he descended into. And that goes back to the idea that I felt an incredible privilege that he was prepared to come and speak so openly because he felt that it might help other people that were listening to it, mm -hmm. um, that he was going to do this. This is a, you know, a talisman of British sport. This is a guy that I'll be forever... Uh, mm -hmm. Regarded as a as as the sporting elite in this country, and yet he didn't want to talk about sports. He wanted to talk about 
his mental health challenges. And I just felt it was, it was such a courageous act that he did. And I'll tell you a little anecdote that at the end of the, at the end of uh, the recording, so he trusted us just to come and talk so openly. And it was only when we'd finished, he said, please don't edit this recording to make me look a dick. <laughs> and, but he only made that request after he'd given us all that information. And that was why we made the decision, uh, Jake and myself and the production team, that we were just going to put the whole interview out completely unedited yeah. based on that request that we said, let's not try and um, cut up his answers for brevity's sake to try and bring the podcast in on 45 minutes. Let's just let it play for its entirety. So that way we can do uh, justice to what Johnny wanted to share with, with us and yeah. that listeners can choose to engage with it and get something from it. So did I understand a lot of the stuff? Um, there was some areas that I must admit I wasn't aware of, but it ignited a curiosity in me subsequently to go and look at it. So, you know, I said to you about some of the criticism on social media. I had some people write to me on email uh, that said, um, Johnny was talking about the teachings of uh, Eckhart Tolle and you were negligent in not asking him to explain that in more detail. And my answer to those people was, I wasn't aware of Eckhart Tolle's teachings. So my, not asking him wasn't done through malice. It was done through ignorance that I just wasn't aware of it. But as a consequence of it, I have now gone and read up some of Eckhart Tolle's work and I can recognize what they were saying. Yeah. But, um, which is actually but, a show of humility in itself because we don't... Yeah, exactly, because, you know, I know what I don't know and I didn't know anything about that. So, I, so again, I think what I was trying to do during the interview with him was to say, how can a listener take what you've been through and apply it to their own life, you know? Yeah. Uh, I, as I say, I've worked in elite sport a lot and I was thinking actually of some of the sports people I, I've worked with over the years that I was thinking this is John is articulating what they told me in private and what's been really interesting is as a consequence of it I, I had within the week when that podcast was released five international uh, sports people contact me that had listened to it yeah. who said he's just defined how I feel and I think it tapped a it tapped into uh, a bit of a rich scene that I think uh, hearing Johnny Wilkinson do it almost made it acceptable for people to go, I, I'm struggling as well. I'm finding this difficult. And if he can admit it, so can I. So I think I'd like to think that Johnny played his part in really shifting the conversation uh, around mental health. Yes. For context, as we're recording, we are... It's just been announced, the third lockdown in England has just been announced. And I think, um, you know, mental health, if it was ever up there as a key topic and uh, relevant subject, it's right now. How Absolutely. Yeah, I think uh, you read some of the statistics and I think this pandemic, you know, has brought a lot of things to the forefront, understandably. But I think what really intrigues me and concerns me is almost like, once, once this hurricane has blown through, what's going to be left as collateral damage? And, and I think that there's an awful lot of people that are, that are finding this period tough and difficult. And I think if, if, if the podcast and if what you're doing, Tracy, can 
play just a small part in giving people either a language or that they can use to articulate it to others or just a sense of reassurance that they're not alone. Yeah. That that is a incredibly humbling. Yeah, for sure, for sure. So um I I I recommend your podcast all of the time. I mean, I it, as I've said, it's my go-to listen. And I was talking to a friend of mine um, who's a mentor and a coach, a guy called Tom Murphy, um, earlier today, and I had I'd put him in touch with your podcast. He's been listening for a year. Oh, thank you. I mentioned that we were chatting today, and he posed a question which is which has really sat with me today, and and it, and it falls beautifully in line with the whole mental health thing which you know which Johnny spoke about so well in, in that interview as well and Tom's question was or not so much a question but a thought process sure. that to be resilient you have to have experienced pain and so do we need to be reframing pain and what it means in the bigger picture so whether that's the anxiety the heartache the the grief yeah instead of thinking of it as something that is holding us back and dragging us down, can we reframe it, Damien? Wow, that's a really powerful idea. Um, the short answer is, well, if I can give two answers to this, I think the short answer is yes, I think reframing it and seeing, seeing it as part of the journey rather than something to be avoided is really important. I think... There's a really simple technique that uh, when I work with teams, but it applies to individuals as well, is I, I talk about once you're clear about where you want to go to, say you've got a plan and people talk about visualization and setting goals and things like that. A really important point once you've done all of that valuable thinking is to engage in, what I, in what's known as a pre-mortem. And a pre-mortem says, what could kill it? So it's a phrase that comes from a psychologist called Gary Klein, where you then work out, now you know where you want to get to, tell us all the obstacles that you're likely to experience along the way. And just by being able to articulate those obstacles and what they are and how you're likely to feel with them, what the evidence tells us is you can improve people's resilience levels by around 30%. Because if you know that it's going to happen and it's going to be part of the journey, rather than be afraid of it or rather than be intimidated by it once it happens. If you already know that it's likely to happen, your ability to just get through it and deal with it successfully automatically becomes stronger. So I think, I think, yeah, seeing it as part of the journey rather than as 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 a sign that that you're on the wrong track can be really really powerful. I mean, this guy Gary Klein, I cited, he's done some research where he's done it with like call center staff. Where people are where in call centers where there's a high churn of turnover. And what one of the simplest ways they've done there is by playing, rather than tell people all the great things of working in your call center, once you've expounded and told them all of that, play them some of the more difficult emotive phone calls they're likely to deal with and ask them, how would you handle this? Does this feel like it's something you could cope with? And what the evidence says is you reduce turnover massively. Because once you've told people this is the reality of it and they face the worst of it and know they can handle that, yeah. they often then find a way of just being able to, uh, to buckle down and get on with it. So I think that, I don't know if that helps articulate this idea of reframing it. But the second point I'd like to make is, 
I hear about people talk about resilience a lot. And I hear about, I'll often hear people in businesses will phone me up and say, oh, we need our staff to become more resilient. And, I, you know, I need to toughen them up. And my answer to them is, I've never met anyone that needs to be resilient in the face of kindness or empathy or understanding. The only time I've met people that really need to be resilient is when you're working in an environment where people are intolerant or uncaring or, or cruel. Yeah. So... My challenge to a lot of business leaders is you've got a cultural problem, not a resilience problem in your workforce. Fix the culture. Rather than try and armor plate people against the culture, fix the culture where people don't necessarily need to feel that they need that they need to toughen up in the face of it. So I think sometimes when people think I need to be resilient, have a look at are you surrounded by people that are treating you with empathy and kindness and decency? And maybe that's a more important place to focus on and worrying about that you don't feel resilient enough to cope. Yeah. Gosh, perfect. Um, <laughs> can I press pause for a moment? Let <laughs> 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 just, just process that a little bit. Damien, I'm conscious of your time, so I'm going to look towards wrapping this up in a minute. But what you, so we've talked about your three non-negotiable um, sort of values and, and traits. What about habits? Do you have any non-negotiable habits that you put in place to keep you on track? For me, meditation every day. Oh, really? How long do you meditate and when do you do it? Are you, are you rigid about those? Yeah, I'm pretty, yes, I am. <laughs> so I meditate twice a day for 20 minutes a day. Um, wow. Yeah, so that will, I will do that most of, the, um, most of the time. Occasionally I might miss one. Um, but yes, for me, and, and, and sometimes I will test it a little bit um, and kind of drop it for a few days and just see the effect. It's almost, yeah. you know, you get used to a good thing, don't you? Um, yeah, yeah, of course. I like that. Yeah, to drop it for a few days and just see, and oh, I feel it. I feel it. Then yeah, yeah. It gives me that. It helps me to face any challenge because I'm of the mindset where we know those challenges are coming, but I want to be ready for them. So I want yeah. to be, you know, and, and I always think that we respond, we respond to challenges uh, according to the baseline levels of stress that we're carrying. Yeah. If I can do whatever I can just to keep those stress levels down, then it, I, I know that when I'm ready to face a challenge, I, I can give it my best shot. <laughs> oh, that's powerful. Yeah, I love that. I, I think um, if I was answering it, I think uh, I, I've acquired a habit in the last uh, 16 months, uh, but, I, but I, I, I was very clear I wanted to acquire this. Um, I got a dog, uh, so I'd never grown up with a dog. Uh, I'd, I'd never grown up around animals, so I was reluctant about it. And when my wife and the, my children had been asking for one for a long time, and, I, and we, we did a scheme where you, where you could look after dogs, and we thought, we'll, we'll try it, we'll see if we like it. Um, and we were looking after a dog one evening, and I took him out, and it was about 8 o'clock one night, and it was just me and him, and it, the sun was setting. And I just felt an immediate peace. I felt a calm and a contentment that I was out in nature, I was alone with my thoughts, and I was looking after But I was there, and there was a purpose to being there in terms of taking the dog. And I remember thinking, I want to acquire this habit of every evening, just being out on my own in nature, 
for a sense of perspective. So I came back that night and said to my wife, we'll, we'll do it, I've decided. Because it was me that was the, the one that was most reluctant, just yeah. based on it was outside of my experience. Yeah. So we got my dog, Teddy, uh, last year. Now, the kids had named him three years before we'd ever <laughs> considered doing it. So, so Teddy was always going to be his name. So we got Teddy uh, last year. Yeah. And uh, it, it's been a game changer for me. Tracy, I, I, I love him. I, I talk about him as my third child now. And oh. if you'd have said to me two years ago, I was going to talk about a, a dog like that, I'd have laughed at you. Uh, but, what, uh, he, what breed is he? The cockapoo. And again, we had to do that because I'm allergic. So he's, he doesn't shed. But he's like me and him just go for long walks of an evening. And there was a couple of occasions last year where I was having a really tough time. I had some uh, personal issues that were really weighing heavily on me and uh, we just used to walk for, for hours and I felt that I, I wasn't speaking to him out loud and I was just alone with my thoughts but he was my companion and he was chatting along with me and again that Kahneman rule of the peak end law he was with me at what I felt was some of my worst times and I felt that that habit was so valuable that um, I, I sometimes feel resentful now when, like when my children say, can I come with you on your night walk, Dad? <laughs> Go, uh, no, 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 uh, you stay here. And <laughs> so, <laughs> um, I mean, they, they do come and I love that uh, in different ways. But, but yeah, that, that habit of just every evening, like in the winter, I get my big coat on. In the summer, it's nice because you can go out in your shorts. So you can, I feel like I appreciate all the seasons. I feel that, it, but, more than anything, I think just being outside gives you a sense of perspective on whatever you're facing. Yeah. It gives you a sense of, you know, we're a small speck here in a, in a brief period of time. Yes. So whatever feels of great magnitude in your head, I think just being outside can sometimes give you that perspective. And so that's been a habit I've acquired in the last 16 months that uh, I've found invaluable. Perfect, perfect. Damien, thank you so, so much for your time. I have absolutely love chatting with you um, it's been a privilege thank you for thank you for having me and and thank you for such uh, thoughtful incisive questions and thank you and anyone's got this far in listening thank you for investing your time in doing so damien it has been an absolute pleasure to chat with you thank you so much Anthony. um thank you so much for listening to my conversation with damien um, I'll put all of the links to find him and the High Performance Podcast below in the notes. Um, check it out. You'll honestly be very glad that you did. Now, just before we wrap, I want to dedicate this episode to a truly wonderful and beautiful woman and friend, Jill Hayes, who was very sadly taken from us far too soon um, just this week. My love and respect goes out to her family and to the entire Exeter community who will miss her smile her presence and her warmth desperately. Jill, we love you very, very much. Thank you so much for listening. I hope you come back next Friday for more. And in the meantime, please stay safe, look out for each other, and most importantly, be kind. <laughs>